Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. It's Wednesday, 21st of October, and this is an entry from the logbook of the whaler Swan of Hull in 1836. She's caught in the ice and will have to overwinter in the Davis Straits between Western Greenland and Baffin Island. The logbook is held in the archives of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. 21st October 1836. Temperature 1 Fahrenheit. Wind direction northeast by east. The forepart of this day fresh breezes with dark weather. Middle part light wind and clear weather. Replenish the oil cask this day containing 22 gallons of neat whale oil. Last by observation 73 degrees 39 minutes north. Three days later, they take down the Tagallant mast to burn for fuel. The swan eventually makes it back to Hull the following July, having lost 25 of the original 48 crew. Observations in that exact location made today reveal that no ice has formed. Welcome everyone to our first full episode and we've chosen a pretty fantastic date to launch upon. Yes, it's the 21st of October and yes, it is the anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. It's one of the most iconic battles in world history, let alone British history. And for the scale of the victory achieved by the British fleet led by Horatio Nelson over the Allied French and Spanish and also for the death of the most brilliant naval commander who has ever lived... Trafalgar became the most famous naval battle in history. It also became one of Britain's greatest sorrows. The collective national outpouring of death that came with news of Nelson's death is perhaps only comparable with that of Diana, Princess of Wales, and her funeral in 1997. That said, Nelson's funeral did actually last for five entire days, which was a little more than Diana's. Today we're going to focus on the biggest relic of them all that survives from the battle, and yes, that's Nelson's flagship HMS Victory, and what a relic she is. She's built, right, from 6,000 trees. Yes, 6,000, 90% of which were oak. That's roughly 100 acres of woodland for one ship. And I'm fairly sure that no one's really thought about this before. 
But I'm convinced that we should have some fairly serious national guilt associated with destroying so much woodland in search of British naval power. The UK, don't forget this, was a pioneer in deforestation. Think about it like this. So victory comes from 6,000 trees, okay? But consider a fleet of warships. At Trafalgar in 1805, the British fleet consisted of 27 ships. Don't forget the 17,000 men on board. But in 1795, a little before that, the, the entire Royal Navy, if you consider it not just about a fleet, but an entire navy, the entire navy consisted of 123 ships of the line and 160 cruisers. So ships of the line, the largest ones, and cruisers, that's 283 ships. I haven't got figures for that, but if you bear in mind that just one ship that took 6,000 trees to build her, well then there certainly is an impact for the forests of Britain. And it wasn't just the British, of course. You know, the combined Franco-Spanish fleet that they were fighting had 33 ships. So although Britain was bad in this period, so were all the other sea powers, cutting down woodland left, right and centre just for the sake of imperialism and being able to fight each other. Anyway, back to the victory. What a fabulous relic she is. She would have had 37 sails flown from three masts. And she would have had 23 spare sails during the battle. That total sail area would have covered something like 6,500 square yards. I think, as I'm English, it's probably a requirement of me to compare such sizes to football pitches. And yes, it is not far off the size of a football pitch. She had over 100 guns, 104 guns, and a crew, get this, of 800 and 50 men and boys. And don't forget, this ship existed in a world that was full of other ships, armed to the teeth, all designed to destroy each other. So it is extraordinary that she still exists. And it's not just about surviving the Battle of Trafalgar, of course. She was launched in 1765. So that's 40 years before the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. It's 255 years ago today. So she'd already had a mighty career before the Battle of Trafalgar, particularly, of course, during the American Revolutionary War in the late 1770s when she fought in uh, the Battle of Ushant, which was one of the largest scale naval battles ever fought. The story of how she has come to still be here in a dry dock in Portsmouth is remarkable in itself and I'll be discussing that later but first of all I want to find out a bit about how her ongoing restoration project is going at the Royal Naval Dockyard in Portsmouth. Hello everyone I'm chatting today with Nick Ball who works with HMS Victory. Hi Nick. Hi Sam. Now Nick has a fascinating job. Nick tell us all what it is exactly that you do. So I'm the archaeological data manager for Victory and basically, I look after the artefacts and archive for the ship. What an amazing job. I mean, who out there is jealous? I bet you all are listening to this. It's a <laughs> fabulous job. I really wish I had it um, early on. What have, you, what have you been doing today? Just give us a little kind of window into your life. So one of the things I've been doing today, actually, is looking at the um, upcoming conservation work. So I've been researching the history of the previous repairs that have happened on Victory. Oh, so it must be fascinating, actually, um, when you're working in conservation like this, trying to, you're realising you, there are layers and levels of history that you've got to kind of be aware of and deal with. Oh yeah, exactly. 
Victory's got such a long history of um, construction and repair and conservation. It's it's fascinating to delve into the into the archive material that explains what happened on the ship. Yeah. Um, and this podcast is going to be coming out on the anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar, so we should talk briefly about Victory's role at the battle. I don't think we could really ignore it. How unusual do you think her experience was compared with the other ships? Do we need to sort of focus on the history of one individual ship, or can we talk about what happened to the entire fleet at the battle? Well, I think it's important to talk about the whole fleet, but I think Victory is is special. She was at the front she was at the van, so she was leading the line um, with, of course, Nelson on board. So when they were heading towards the f- combined French and Spanish fleet, Victory was at the fore, taking a lot of the, a lot of the enemy fire. Yeah, I mean, that was a very un- unusual, unique part of Nelson's plan, wasn't it? To put the largest ships right at the front and to attack at 90 degrees to the enemy. Yeah, often the, the uh, admirals would um, have put their flagship in the middle of the line, but Nelson chose to put his at, at the van. Yeah, and then because of that, when they broke through the French line, then the victory is absolutely at the heart of that battle, isn't it? It's where it's where, where the battle's going to be won or lost. Yeah, exactly. And then obviously once victory had cut the line, she had Boussentour to the to the port and Regitab to the uh, starboard. So she's completely surrounded by French ships. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a, 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 an extraordinary moment to actually be alive and be be there. I mean, particularly Victory's gun decks, the the open the weather decks were uh, were, were shredded by gunfire from the Redoubtable, weren't they? There was a real shocking level of destruction. Oh yes, the uh, lieutenant uh, on board, um, Lewis Rotley, described it as being um, like being in hell. And every man appeared as a devil because of the firepower and the, the shot that were coming through and splinters and everything like that. It was, must have been a, a horrific sight. Yeah, and it's often, everyone focuses on the death of Nelson, but it's often overlooked, I think, that the the, the carnage on the weather deck of victory was to such an extent that the, the her fate certainly hung in the balance there for a while. And, and French sailors from the Redoubtable massed to get ready to board. Victory, really, the British fleet were concentrating on on gunnery, the large guns, the cannons on the gun decks. Whereas I think the French captain of of Redoubtable, Lucas, he he concentrated on small arms, musketry, and and really he was preparing to board, and that was his real aim. Yeah, um, extraordinary. I mean, then and, and also that there's the the terrible storm after the battle, and Victory suffered as much as any of the other ships, didn't she? Well, luckily enough, um, Victory was able to make it into Gibraltar on a jury rig. Um, so, uh, and then have, have necessary repairs made there before sailing back, back to England. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, I mean, I was going to say it's, it's a miracle that she still survives today. But of course, it's not actually a miracle. It's down to an immense amount of money and a huge amount of hard work, of which you're the latest generation. Yeah, no, it's an honour to be part of, um, you know, the continuing history of, of such a ship. It's mm. fascinating. So what's happening with Victory's restoration now? So at the moment, uh, well, o- over the last few years, um, Victory has been laser scanned and um, this found uh, some problems with the support um, in the hull. Um, the, the steel cradles that she was supported on in the dry dock were actually found to be causing some difficulties with her, her loading and her weight within the dock because obviously she's in dry dock. Um, and Which is not, uh, not, not designed to have been in dry dock. The exactly. whole point about these ships is they're designed to float, aren't they? Exactly. So she's been in dry dock for, well, 
over 90 years, well, coming up to 100 years now, um, mm. since 1922. So this these 100 years in the dry dock have caused considerable strain on her hull. So there's a new support system which was um, just installed. It was completed this year. Um, a series of props that monitor the loading. There's 134 props. So Victory is supported in a way that's similar to being supported in water. So it provides a much more stable structure for her to be sitting on in the dock. Yeah, as far as I understand it, they're, they're kind of intelligent props, aren't they? They can monitor exactly how much load is being placed on them and then that can be adjusted. Yeah, exactly. So each one has a, a load cell so we can monitor the exact load on e- every single one of those props and adjust it accordingly. Wow. And one of the good things, we've just actually opened the dock bottom for the first time ever. There's a walkway. So once you've been on board and you've gone around and looked on board, you come out of the ship and then you go down into the into the dock and you can walk along under Victory and see her keel and rudder. And it's an amazing um, view because also the, the new props are much slimmer than the old uh, steel cradle. So you can really see her hull lines underneath when you stand underneath her. Oh, that's fascinating. I'd love to actually be able to see that. So the view is much less interrupted then. You can see that distinctive wine glass shape of her hull above you. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the the things that made Victory such a successful ship was her design. For such a big vessel, she was fast and, and, and everyone said she was a good sailor, everyone who served on board her. Um, Victory was described by Nelson when he, when he set out... Um, in 1805, he described her as perfect in every respect. Oh, yeah. That's quite sweet, isn't it? I quite yeah. like that. Sort of, yeah. sort of absolutely wonderful. I wonder if he actually meant that or whether he was just uh, saying it for the sailors on board her, whether it's um, uh, you know, a way of actually getting everyone to, to, be, to be on board with your mission. Yeah, well, I suppose that's one of the reasons why Nelson was such a good commander. He, he managed to get everyone behind him, whatever yeah. he was doing. Yeah, it's um, he was never never um shy of a white lie. <laughs> so I wonder if that's if that applies as well. But we do know that she sailed very fast. And actually, talking about the shape of her hull is interesting, because so much above the water changed over time, didn't it? When she was launched uh, in 1765, she had the the what the common features of ships of the, the middle of, middle of the 18th century so she had open stern galleries um, so the officers could go out on the stern there were balcony like structures uh, she had a very large figurehead and uh, they they were replaced in 1803 the stern was closed in the figurehead was replaced with a smaller one and uh, and then obviously in the 19th century there were huge changes um, at Trafalgar when victory was uh, cutting the line just before Victory cut the line she was taking a hell of a lot of um, shot from from forward and and the bow was very weak and in the 19th century in 1814 the the whole of the bow was replaced and that they installed what was called the round bow and this was a sort of design feature of the time that which increased the strength of ships so the tactics resulted in changing the construction of the ships. Hmm, that's fascinating, isn't it? I love um, just the way it's so easy to gloss over the sheer unbelievable engineering ability of these people. So if you haven't been to Victor, everyone, just imagine she's unbelievably huge. And to say that they just replaced the bow is some significant engineering challenge to take on. Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. And I I think um, people often get get 
you know, they don't believe me when I say that um, there were over 850 men on board. And it's, uh, and it's, it is quite, it's quite something that is, they were built as fighting machines. Yeah, yeah. And the size of the rig is extraordinary as well, because we we're talking here about the, 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 the shape of the hull primarily staying the same and the stern galleries closing. But the rig changed remarkably as well. It changed a lot where they had the mizzen mast changed. But I read recently that the um, they actually uh, moved the the all of the masts. They moved them astern like a foot or something. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, wow, that must have been some challenge. Well, actually, yeah, you, that's one of the challenges we're facing at the moment because we're preparing to um, unstep and remove the mast for the first time in 128 years. So it's quite a big challenge. Um, we're starting with the main mast and the current masts on board are actually from HMS Shah um, from the late 19th century. And they were put on board in, in the 1890s uh, to replace uh, Victory's wooden ones. The current ones are actually raw iron. Ah. I wonder if that makes them heavier than, the, than whether they'd be timber. I think it actually makes them lighter because they're oh, okay. hollow. Yeah, so it's made up of plates that are... Are riveted together so i think overall it's a bit lighter yeah and so we've got this new um uh, walkway which is going to be down at uh, the bottom of the dock that sounds fascinating so just take us through the visitor experience when you arrive on victory which which deck do you do you arrive on and then where do you go so you enter on the entry port on the port side uh, so that's the left side of the ship and you enter on the middle gun deck and then the route takes you um up up the, um, to the quarter deck, so this was Nelson's kind of nerve centre on board, and this is where he would have commanded the fleet from. Uh, and actually the position where he was shot um, is marked with a plaque. So you're up on the quarter deck, um, so this is one of the, the top decks, so you're open to the elements. Then you can go through and see um, Captain Hardy's cabin, so Hardy was the captain at Trafalgar, um, then you can go down, you, you go forward uh, along the deck and you go down into the sit bay on the upper gun deck, go along the decks and you can see where the crew would have um, worked, worked the guns and they ate and slept all at the all on the, in the same place on the decks between the guns. There's that wonderful area where all the hammocks are laid out and there's so little space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've got it set up as if the ship, as if she's on the eve of the Battle of Trafalgar. So the guns are ready. There's um, boarding pikes and, so and and cutlasses set out, ready for um, you know, ready for if they were planning to board the French ships. Um, when you go down through, uh, well, on the on the upper deck, you've got the uh, admiral's cabin. So Nelson's cabin. You can see where he um, he dined, where he invited his captains to dine, where he slept as well. Um, then you go down into the um, lower gun deck you can go down and see the um more guns as well as the ship's pumps and <laughs> capstans um then you go down to the orlock deck and that that's this where... is my favorite deck this is definitely my favorite experience everyone if you have a chance to go to victory go as low as you can yeah so the orlock deck is below the waterline so it's it's pitch black well we've got a few lights just so people can <laughs> don't bang their head it's very <laughs> very low decks and uh, this is where nelson was taken after he was uh, wounded so uh, this is where the surgeon worked and um, where everyone was taken when they were injured. So, um, and it's the spot where Nelson died um, after, well, just before the end of the battle. 
so we heard the news obviously that 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 the british had won and uh yeah so then you're um you go through the all up deck and you see the 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 gunners workshop the carpenters workshop um, i find the stores fascinating as well i think there's an area where you've just got coiled ropes i know that a coiled rope sounds boring but ladies and gentlemen this <laughs> rope is the, the... <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable it's uh it's that you know the diameter is the size of a small tree yeah, when you when you uh, go through, you see the uh, the the anchor cable. So these are the huge ropes that hold the anchors, and they're all stored on the all up deck. And then you can go down into the hold of Victory, and this is where they stored all the provisions, all the beer and and all the the bread and everything that they needed um, on board. Yeah, and and to actually go down layer upon layer, it's quite bewildering, isn't it? Once you get down to the bottom, and you you can't quite work out how many decks you've gone through to get yeah. There. Yeah, it's a kind of warren of uh, of decks and and small storerooms and cabins and everything like that. So uh, and it's we've so got... authentic as well. The, what I think is the distinctive smell um, of of the it's the Stockholm tar, isn't it? And the and the and the, the ropes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um, yeah the, the smells are really authentic. It's you know it's from the it's from the wood, the timber, and the ropes and everything like that. Yeah. So what's happening with the ship's hull planking? I know that's something else you guys are working on. Yeah, so um, one of the big problems with keeping a, a ship um, in dry dock, well, anywhere keeping a ship, is keeping her watertight. And um, so there's lots of water getting in, rainwater um, getting in through the through the decks, through the planks. So we're going to start uh, next year replacing a lot of the hull planks. Um, and uh, so you're going to see, if you come visit Victory, you'll see shipwrights, um, using traditional tools and methods um, to replace these huge planks. Some of them are, you know, metres and metres long. And uh, it, it's a huge task to get these planks up on board and then and then fit them to the hull. Yeah, and and that, how, how many, how big is the, the, the crew working on this project? How, how many how many shipwrights are there? Oh, well, we're expecting to expand the team, I think. Um, we're going to have... Um, I think we've got about half a dozen at the moment and we're going to expand. Yeah. And it's just, I only asked that because it's such a fraction of, of what would have been available in the 19th century to do something like that when it would have been crawling over with shipwrights like ants all over the place. Yeah, exactly. And and one of the things, it's keeping these skills alive because there's, there's often sort of fewer and fewer people who are using these traditional techniques to work yeah. on these wooden ships. And of course, there's not many wooden ships of victory size around today. No, um, and I, when I went to see her uh, recently with the riggings being taken down in anticipation of you guys removing the masts, my, my immediate panicky thought was like, does anyone know how to put this stuff back? Because it's so confusing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where a lot of the archive research comes in, which is one of the things I'm working on, you know. So it's keeping records, meticulous records of rigging plans and planking plans and everything so we know exactly what's happened and how to put it back. Yeah, it's like a crazy jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But once you do put everything back, how I mean, how do you then decide which bit of Victory's life you want to to present to the public? Because you say I mean, at the moment, uh, much of it is set out as it would be on the eve of Trafalgar. That was, I, was what was decided in the 1920s, wasn't it? And a key part of this is what colour do you paint her? Because she wasn't always this chequered black and yellow. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that we've been doing over... Well, 
we've been doing over the last few years is, is researching the, the details of, of Victory. Um, of course, we know that she was yellow and black at Trafalgar, but the actual exact colours that she had um, were unknown in the 1920s when she was repainted yellow and black. So um, we did some, we undertook some research to uh, look at the exact colours she would have had on that on the day. And uh, you do this by cutting samples of paint off and studying the many layers because Victory has been painted so many times that you look at the layers of paint and you look at the earlier ones and then you can work out exactly what the pigments and the colours were at the time. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> Forensic yeah. paint investigation. Yeah, exactly. And then in 2015, we repainted her in her true Trafalgar colours. Ah, yeah. So that's what you get if you go and see see the whole today even though she is without her rig. Now, I just wanted to um, pick up on a, a fascinating thing which I've come across, uh, which you, you will know very much ab about. And this is the, the uh, a letter which was relating to HMS Victory from the 19th century. Yeah. Um, yeah, do you want to tell me about that? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, so we have in the archive a letter from um, Franklin Roosevelt, the American president, and it's thanking uh, a descendant of one of Victory's crews for returning a med medicine chest to, to the White House. Yeah, um, I'm just going to read this out. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's addressed the White House, Washington, April the 26th, 1939. That's an important date. I'm going to come back to that. My dear Mr. Keynes, I need... I, I'm sorry, I haven't got a good American accent I could put on. <laughs> My dear Mr. Keynes, I need hardly assure you of the pleasure which it gave me yesterday to receive a call from you and Mrs. Keynes and Mr. Stillman. And, of course, I am delighted to receive that very interesting memento of the faraway days of the War of 1812. How time mellows our perspective of events. 
I do want you to realise that I appreciate not less than the quaint little medicine chest itself, the gracious sentiments which you expressed in bringing it to me, as well as the very interesting account of its journeyings through the last century and a quarter. The chest will become one of my most cherished possessions, and for your generosity in bestowing it, I am more grateful than I can say. Very sincerely yours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. <laughs> what a letter! That <laughs> yeah. man's a wordsmith. So, um, yeah, th- this story's amazing. Yeah, so Thomas Keynes, uh, he was purser on board Victory in the 1830s, but he We served... should just say that um, a purser is someone who's responsible for the, the accounts and the, and the money in the stores, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he was, he was purser on Victory in the 1830s, and he had in his possession this medicine chest, which... He took, or maybe one of his friends took, from the White House when when it was burned in 1814. <laughs> so, <laughs> this, yeah, so uh, this is August 1814 during the War of 1812 um, when Major General Robert Ross gets into Washington and sets fire to uh, several government and military buildings, including the White House and the Capitol building. It's the only time since the American Revolution, uh, that's in the 1770s, that a foreign power captured and occupied the capital of the United States. <laughs> so it relates to that. So, yeah, this was it was from the White House. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, as I understand it, they still have the medicine chest there today. <laughs> I'd love to see that. Yeah. I'd love to see that. I was just going to get in touch with them and see if they can send us a picture. Um, what I also really fascinated by this, this is April 26th, 1939. There's quite a lot going on in April 1939 in the world. And, and I love this image of um, of Roosevelt sitting down and, and writing a, a wonderful and patient thank you letter when he knows that the Germans have just invaded Czechoslovakia. And it's it's only two days after this that um, Hitler decides to reject the Anglo-German naval agreement, which is one of the most fundamental uh, things that happens in Nazi aggression in 1939. And the the Germans then go on and start building an enormous navy. So the world's absolutely changing. And yet there's this beautiful moment of calm and moment of contemplation of history um, going back to, to the War of 1812. That's why I like it so much. All of these links through time, Nick. Yeah, no, it's quite something, and it's it's amazing when you when you have these. That's what I like about working with archives when you actually have these things and see them in in the flesh, you know, in the museum. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, and I'm definitely going to come back because you guys are working on a new um, a new gallery, aren't you? Yeah. So we've been. That's one of the things I've been doing, working on a new HMS Victory gallery. So uh, sort of more news of that uh, down the line, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, and I promise I'll come back. Cheers, Nick. Bye. Thanks very much. Cheers. Well, that's an amazing story of what's happening to the ship now and how they're constantly being forced to innovate to keep victory in decent shape for future generations. But there's another fascinating story here of how we even got to be in this position in the first place, how the flagship from the Battle of Trafalgar is still in one place in Portsmouth. So now I'm talking to David Davis, chairman of the Society for Nautical Research, which was instrumental in saving HMS Victory, to see if we can get to the bottom of the story. Hi, David. Hi, Sam. Have you been to Victory recently? Yes, I was there a few weeks ago. I mean, I didn't have a chance to go on the ship itself, but I had a look at the new system of props under the hull. And it was actually the first time I'd ever been right under the hull. And I mean, to see it from that perspective is absolutely 
stunning. I mean, it gives you an incredibly different look at the the ship and its lines and, and so on. Absolutely tremendous. Yeah, it's a very innovative way of looking at it and presenting it. Um, and it's going to be fabulous when when the public can get in there and have a good look. Um, but she's looking a bit sad without the, without the rigging, I always think. Well, yeah, and she's going to look a bit sadder for a while, really, because the masts are coming out next. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, it's going to be like that for a long, long time, isn't it? it? It is. I mean, this is an incredibly long-term project. I mean, it's like painting not just one fourth road bridge, but several of them. <laughs> um, it's, um, it, it's an incredible thing, which will be still going on long after our time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fabulous having her there, isn't it? It's a reminder of obviously the type of warship that she was that once dominated the oceans but also um you can tell with these new props that she's a model of standards and methods which uh, be followed for other other wooden ships that need to be conserved oh absolutely i mean she's a tremendous example a tremendous survival you know in all sorts of respects we are just so so lucky that that ship survived i mean one thing that really struck me when I was down there under the hull was that, you know, in the Second World War, a bomb literally struck the side of that dock. You can still see some of the bomb damage. And literally a very few feet the other way, and the entire ship would have been completely wiped out. It it was that close. So we, we are unbelievably lucky that it's still there. And, you know, you can still go aboard and see the place where Nelson lived, where he died. Yeah, and it and it wasn't an accidental bomb drop. That was. I mean, you've got to bear in mind that Victory was in Portsmouth Dockyard, and Portsmouth Dockyard was a pretty high high target for the Luftwaffe. Absolutely, yeah, of course it was. I mean, this was this was the point. It was it was in what until twenty years earlier had been one of the active working dry docks of Portsmouth Dockyard. It was surrounded by active dockyard buildings. So, I mean, it was an incredible stroke of luck. Yeah, it must have been extraordinary seeing her um, in that period in the 40s with the bombs falling down around her. She's probably yeah, in that, her element, David. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a, there's actually a wonderful painting. Not many people see this. It's in the sort of the the gallery in the Naval Museum of what victory looked like during the um, the Second World War, you know, with all the... Uh, the ships in grey and so on around it, all the camouflage. It really is um, an amazing picture. Yeah, and it wasn't just the, the, the survival of the, you know, the, the near destruction from the bombs. I found this quote here from Sir Edward Seymour, um, and he, he was writing in 1886. So this was, um, you know, 40 years or so before a significant movement was made to actually save the ship. And he wrote, a more rotten ship never probably flew the pennant. I could literally run my walking stick through her sides in many places. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the key thing. I mean, throughout the 19th century, the ship deteriorates. Um, It's obviously changed a lot anyway, but of course it's still in the water, it's in the water all the time, and it receives very little major maintenance, and of course it has another incredibly close shave in 1903 when the old battleship HMS Neptune is being towed away to the scrapyard, Mm. something goes wrong, it collides with the victory. Now it could easily have smashed victory to pieces at that particular point, but it's actually that that is the turning point because from then on, people start to realise, well, 
we need to do something about this. And slowly, the momentum starts to build to actually preserve victory properly. That, of course, is interrupted by the First World War. And that's why it actually takes until the 1920s for something actually to happen about it. Yeah. It's it, when, that, when was that collision, did you say? 1903? 1903, yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got the centenary of the Battle of Trafalgar in 1905. Yeah. So yeah. that's when you've got renewed public attention in in the battle, in the ship itself. And I think at the same time, it wasn't just victory. There was a rapid dip- disappearance of other wooden 19th century or even earlier ships, which had actually been slumbering in naval harbours. One of the important things to realise is, yes, we've got victory now, but it wasn't so long ago where there were many other ships, um, all with fascinating histories lurking around the harbours and ports of the UK. And so, it, yes, she does survive, but there is there is a ghost fleet of ships out there that didn't survive, that weren't lucky enough. Absolutely, and of course, the classic example of that was HMS Implacable, which had actually fought on the French side of Trafalgar. Mm. So you've got a second tremendous survival of Trafalgar, but again, there's hardly any maintenance. It becomes more and more difficult to keep it going. Then the Second World War happens, and after the Second World War, it's finally agreed, well, it's in such a bad state that even if somebody did want to preserve it, you know, it it simply couldn't be done. So in 1949, the implacable was actually towed out to sea. There's a ceremony. It flies both the British and French ensigns, and it's blown up, and it is sunk in the channel. And obviously, the ships around it salute, and all the officers on those ships salute, and so on. But the fact remains that it is deliberately sunk. And something mm. like that, or more likely in, in Victory's case, an accidental destruction, may well have happened. And we would have lost this absolutely fantastic survival of the 18th and 19th century sailing navy. Well, implacable. It was actually used as um, target practice. I mean, that's that's what they did. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Her, her, they kept her stern. So her stern is now, you can see her stern, the stern gallery, the stern windows in the National Maritime Museum, in the big yeah, hall downstairs. Right. I always thought it could be, it could be. if anyone's listening from the National Maritime Museum, can you please put it up so it's possible to look out of the windows? Because that's the whole purpose of the windows yes. in the back of a sailing warship. And at the moment, it's hard against a wall. So you can't get that experience of being in and looking through the windows. Nonetheless, it's there. It's good. Um, and then there's the National Historic Ships Committee, which is set up to look after our historic fleet. And um, implacable never again is their motto. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a great example of, you know, let's not go there again, ever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting as well that you've got a victory in, in, in the dock. I mean, some people assume that she was in the dock that she was built in, and that's wrong. It's a common misconception because victory was actually constructed at Chatham. But there were, it's important to realise that, that there were numerous ideas proposed about how to preserve her for the nation. Once... Um, the momentum, we should say, the Society for Nautical Research got behind this idea of saving HMS Victory. There were various other plans which were proposed, um, one of which um, was that she would be lifted into a cradle and placed permanently in Trafalgar Square, which... Wow! <laughs> um, that would have been quite spectacular, but but not really her natural environment. Well, at least now she's in a dock. Absolutely. I mean, undoubtedly in the right sort of place. I mean, something like that, where it's, you know, just going to be this absolutely bizarre site in a completely inappropriate location. No, I mean, it's in absolutely... 
the right kind of location. In other words, surrounded still by the working warships of the Royal Navy. I mean, when I was down there, as I say, quite recently, you know, you could just turn slightly from looking at Victory, just turn a few feet around, and you're looking at the two huge new aircraft carriers, HMS Queen Elizabeth, HMS Prince of Wales. Well, that is exactly the right context for HMS Victory. Yeah, not yeah. you know in Trafalgar Square. No, no, and it, well, it's so it's so profound for understanding the context of actually what's going on. It really does make you stop and think because it's really interesting coping with the size of victory. So part of you goes, it's absolutely enormous, and then you look left as you say, and you see a refitting um, aircraft carrier. You're like, it's unbelievably tiny. Um, you get, yeah, absolutely, you, get, you yeah. get very bewildered about what sort of scale you're supposed to to kind of how you're supposed to deal with it. It's a real yeah. challenge, isn't it? it? It is, absolutely. I mean, both externally and internally, because, I mean, it's, internally it's almost like a reverse TARDIS. It, yeah. It's actually it's <laughs> actually smaller on the inside than you think. And, I mean, I'm six foot three, so I always have a terrible, terrible problem aboard Victory, and often leave Victory with a headache, because, <laughs> of course, the deck beams are just so low. And, I mean, all right, Nelson, in a sense, was lucky. He was a very short man. But, you know, taller people throughout history on these wooden warships must have had a terrible time. Yeah, well, Duncan, you know, if you think of Admiral Duncan in the 18th Duncan, century. yeah. Big Scottish man, there you are. He was huge. He was well over six foot. He was, yeah. He was yeah. indeed, yes. So we've got this this kind of moment in the early 20th century. We talked about the near collision in 1903, this uh, report from the 1880s as well about her being rotten. And the Society for Nautical Research gets involved in uh, the 20s and yeah. starts raising money. Yeah, it's it's 1921, and I mean, it actually, it's in the spring of 1921, and it's the Society's first president, Prince Louis of Battenberg, subsequently Mountbatten, who is, of course, our current patron, the Duke of Edinburgh's grandfather. Yeah. And it was he who wrote to say, look, you know, something really, really needs to be done about victory. He died later in the year, but the momentum was was there. And in 1922, on Trafalgar Day, 1922, the Society launches what becomes known as the Save the Victory Fund, which we still administer. And the ship was actually restored to what we see now, the lines that were considered to be what it had looked like at Trafalgar. And that was very, very much something that came from the Society. It was the Society that said, right, this is how we're going to restore it. So it was very much the driving force there in the early days. Yeah, and this is the 20s. They managed to raise over 100 grand. In, yeah. I mean, the 20s are not known for their booming <laughs> for the boom, booming times. It was a time of fairly serious economic troubles. Um, and they, yet they still managed to raise all of this money. One of the ways they did it, they had collections in theatres, which I thought was, I came across that recently, absolutely fascinating. People literally rattling buckets and saying, give us your money, give us your money. And, and, uh, and the public responded. Absolutely. I mean, it's absolutely tremendous. As you say, there are the really small contributions from all sorts of ordinary people all over the country and indeed all over the world. You know, there were contributions coming in from other countries as well. In the end, of course, they did have a stroke of luck that a rich benefactor came along as well and finally pushed the fund to completion. This was a man named Sir James Caird who was a Scottish uh, shipping magnate, um, and he became incredibly involved, not just in the affairs of the SNR, 
but subsequently in the foundation of the National Maritime Museum at Greenwich. And to this day, if you actually go and do some research down at Greenwich in the museum, you're working in the Caird Library. Mm. His influence on that place is still huge. But yeah, from him down to the humblest person in the cinema, it was a fantastic national effort. Yeah, and, and it wasn't just the ship. I mean, we, we're concentrating on the ship here, but at the time when it was saved in the 20s, there was a mini museum on board. I would love to go back and look at that now, just for what it tells us about how naval relics were dealt with in the 1920s. It would have been a really, really interesting to see what was presented and how it was presented. Uh, but that, that collection of relics, which was on board the ship, but had to be removed when they were preserving Victory, then became the foundation for the Victory Gallery at, at, at Portsmouth. It did indeed, and that again was very much an initiative that came from the SNR, Um, and it was suggested that this should be done, something like this should be established, as you say, to hold that collection and lots of other things as well, and it was opened in 1937, again, very, very much through the driving force that came from the society, Um, and it's really, really appropriate. I mean, we we are still involved with that. We've recently given a grant to the restoration of that, to the fantastic new displays that will be opening early next year. Yeah. One of the most interesting things I think that has survived is the four topsail from uh, Victory, which is an absolutely extraordinary thing. It, it's it's enormous. It's 54 feet wide at the top. Uh, it's, it's 80 feet across at the foot. So it's narrower at the top than it is at the foot. It's got the, I mean, it, it, it is the actual topsail that she was flying at Trafalgar. They've taken it off, and so it's it's still got all of the damage the, from the shot and the musket ball um, there. And I I think it's it's one of the most profoundly impactful naval relics I've ever seen. I agree entirely. I mean, I first saw it in two thousand and five, the bicentenary. Uh, it was hung up in uh, boathouse in Portsmouth Dockyard. And when I first went in there, I just stood in front of it and stared at it for minutes on end. I mean, I couldn't move. I couldn't say anything. It was just such an extraordinary sight. As you say, the thing that really makes it incredibly powerful is the actual damage that's on it. You can see the shot holes, mm. you know, where where the enemy shot has gone through um, the sail. And, and again, I mean, we were really, really pleased to be able to provide funding at that time in 2005 for that sale to go on display. And I would love nothing more in terms of victory at the moment than to find a way in which that sale could be on permanent display. I think it would be absolutely incredible. It's, it's a mixture of the scale of the damage and the size of the sale. Uh, it looks like it's been taken by a, a kind of a giant and, and chewed up and spat out is the only way I can describe it. It's, it. You can't kind of get your head around what could possibly have caused that much damage to something that big. Absolutely. I mean, as, as I say, it is just a stunning sight. And it's sad that so few people have actually had the opportunity to see it. And actually, the last time it was on display, it was laid flat um, in a building. So... It was actually even better, in my opinion, but I would say this, wouldn't I, when I saw it actually hanging yeah. vertically as it would have been on the day of the battle. Yeah, and it's being able to see through the holes that I thought was 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 completely extraordinary. So if you say, okay, there's a sail with holes in it, but you can't quite clock that 
in the gaps, there is no sale. And so you're almost sort of 60% of what you're looking at actually isn't there. Um, it's, it's very difficult to get your head around, but a, a wonderful thing. And let's certainly hope that in the future we can um, all get up close to that sale. I'd like to do a study of that, actually. So I mean, there we are. That's, that's in broad brushes the, how the victory is here. It's, it really is a fascinating story. Um, and all to do with the Society for Nautical Research. Interestingly, you said the Duke of Edinburgh is our patron. I wrote a letter to the Duke of Edinburgh telling him that we were launching a podcast, and he wrote back. <laughs> Which he I'm very pleased. <laughs> yeah, he takes it very seriously. He has been a fantastic, you know, help the Society over many, many years. He does, and we've got a personal message from the Duke of Edinburgh wishing us all the best in our new endeavours. So, um, we are. This is, this is the first episode of this great new endeavour. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, we've got so much more exciting stuff coming your way. Um, thank you all for listening. Do please help us by spreading the word. You can follow us on social media, on particular Twitter, it's at Nautical History. Uh, Facebook, you can find us at Society for Nautical Research. snr.org.uk is our website and the best thing you can do if you want to support the podcast if you want to support hms victory the best thing you can do is to join the society so please do so at snr.org.uk and we'll be back with you soon with some more fabulous stories and some exciting news thanks for listening guys bye Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.